0: Phase the First Part Two of Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three As for Tess Durbeyfield, she did not so easily dislodge the incident from her consideration. She had no spirit to dance again for a long time, though she might have had plenty of partners. But, ah! they did not speak so nicely as the strange young man had done it was not till the rays of the sun had absorbed the young stranger's retreating figure on the hill that she shook off her temporary sadness and answered her would-be partner in the affirmative she remained with her comrades till dusk and participated with a certain zest in the dancing though being heart-whole as yet she enjoyed treading a measure purely for its own sake little divining when she saw the soft torments the bitter sweets the pleasing pains and the agreeable distresses of those girls who had been wooed and won what she herself was capable of in that kind the struggles and wrangles of the lads for her hand in a jig were an amusement to her no more and when they became fierce she rebuked them she might have stayed even later but the incident of her father's odd appearance and manner returned upon the girl's mind to make her anxious and wondering what had become of him she dropped away from the dancers and bent her steps towards the end of the village at which the parental cottage lay while yet many score yards off other rhythmic sounds than those she had quitted became audible to her sounds that she knew well so well they were a regular series of thumpings from the interior of the house occasioned by the violent rocking of a cradle upon a stone floor to which movement a feminine voice kept time by singing in a vigorous gallopade the favourite ditty of the spotted cow i saw her lie down in yonder greengrove come love and i'll tell you where the cradle-rocking and the song would cease simultaneously for a moment and an exclamation at highest vocal pitch would take the place of the melody god bless thy diamond eyes and thy waxen cheeks and thy merry mouth and thy cubit's thighs and every bit of thy blessed body after this invocation the rocking and the singing would recommence and the spotted cow proceed as before So matters stood when Tess opened the door and paused upon the mat within it, surveying the scene. The interior, in spite of the melody, struck upon the girl's senses with an unspeakable dreariness. From the holiday gaieties of the field, the white gowns, the nosegays, the willow wands, the whirling movements on the green, the flash of gentle sentiment towards the stranger, to the yellow melancholy of this one-candled spectacle, what a step! Besides the jar of contrast, there came to her a chill self-reproach that she had not returned sooner to help her mother in these domesticities, instead of indulging herself out of doors. There stood her mother amid the group of children as Tess had left her, hanging over the Monday washing-tub which had now, as always, lingered on to the end of the week. Out of that tub had come the day before, Tess felt it with a dreadful sting of remorse, the very white frock upon her back, which she had so carelessly greened about the skirt on the damping grass, which had been wrung up and ironed by her mother's own hands, as usual, Mrs. Derbyfield was balanced on one foot beside the tub, the other being engaged in the aforesaid business of rocking her youngest child. The cradle rockers had done hard duty for so many years under the weight of so many children on that flagstone floor that they were worn nearly flat in consequence of which a huge jerk accompanied each swing of the cot flinging the baby from side to side like a weaver's shuttle as mrs durbeyfield excited by her song trod the rocker with all the spring that was left in her after a long day's seething in the suds knock 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 went the cradle the candle flame stretched itself tall and began jigging up and down the water dribbled from the matron's elbows, and the song galloped on to the end of the verse—Mrs. Derbyfield, regarding her daughter the while. Even now, when burdened with a young family, Joan Derbyfield was a passionate lover of tune. No ditty floated into Blackmoor Vale from the outer world, but Tess's mother caught up its notation in a week. There still faintly beamed from the woman's features something of the freshness and even the prettiness of her youth rendering it probable that the personal charms which tess could boast of were in main part her mother's gift and therefore unknightly unhistorical i'll rock the cradle for ye mother said the daughter gently or i'll take off my best frock and help you ring up i thought you had finished long ago her mother bore tess no ill-will for leaving the housework to her single-handed efforts for so long Indeed, Joan seldom upbraided her thereon at any time, feeling but slightly the lack of Tessa's assistance, whilst her instinctive plan for relieving herself of her labours lay in postponing them. To-night, however, she was in a blither mood than usual. There was a dreaminess, a preoccupation, an exaltation in the maternal look, which the girl could not understand. "'Well, I'm glad you've come.' her mother said, as soon as the last note had passed out of her,—'I want to go and fetch your father. But, what's more than that, I want to tell ye what have happened.' "'You'll be fess enough, my puppet, when this known!' Mrs. Derbyfield habitually spoke the dialect. Her daughter, who had passed the sixth standard in the National School under a London-trained mistress, spoke two languages—the dialect, at home, more or less ordinary english abroad and to persons of quality since i've been away tess asked i had it anything to do with father's making such a moment of himself in the carriage this afternoon i did i felt inclined to sink into the ground with shame that we're all a part of the larry we've been found to be the greatest gentlefolk in the whole country Reaching all back long before Oliver Grumble's time to the times of the pagan Turks, with monuments and vaults and crests and scutcheons and the Lord knows what all. In Saint Charles's day, we was made knights of the Royal Oak. Our real name being D'urberville. Don't that make your bosom plim? It was on this account that your father rode home in the Vlee, not because he'd been drinking, as people supposed. I'm glad of it will it do us any good mother oh yes tis thoughted that great things may come of it no doubt a mumpus of folk of our own rank will be down here in their carriages as soon as tis known your father learnt it on his way home from shaston and he's been telling me the whole pedigree of the matter where is father now asked tess suddenly her mother gave irrelevant information by way of answer he called to see the doctor to-day in shaston it is not consumption at all it seems it is fat round his heart he says there it is like this joan Derbyfield, as she spoke curved a sodden thumb and forefinger to the shape of the letter c and used the other forefinger as a pointer at the present moment he says to your father your heart is enclosed all round here and all round here this space is still open he says as soon as it do meet so Mrs. Durbeyfield closed her fingers into a circle complete. Off ye will go like a shatter, Mr. Durbeyfield, he says. You might last ten years, you might go off in ten months, or ten days. Tess looked alarmed. Her father possibly to go behind the internal cloud so soon, notwithstanding this sudden greatness. But where is father? she asked again. Her mother put on a deprecating look. Now don't you be bursting out angry. The poor man, he felt so rafted after his uplifting from the parson's news, that he went up to Rolliver's half an hour ago. He do want to get up his strength for his journey to-morrow with that load of beehives, which must be delivered, family or no. He'll have to start shortly after twelve to-night, as the distance is so long. Get up his strength? said Tess impetuously, the tears welling to her eyes. Oh, my God! Go to a public-house to get up his strength, and you as well agreed as he, mother? Her rebuke and her mood seemed to fill the whole room, and to impart a cowed look to the furniture and candle and children playing about, and to her mother's face. No, said the latter touchily, I be not agreed. I have been waiting for ye to bide and keep house while I go fetch him. I'll go. Oh, no, Tess you see it would be no use tess did not expostulate she knew what her mother's objection meant mrs durbeyfield's jacket and bonnet were already hanging slyly upon a chair by her side in readiness for this contemplated jaunt the reason for which the matron deplored more than its necessity and take the complete fortune-teller to the outhouse joan continued rapidly wiping her hands and donning the garments the complete fortune-teller was an old thick volume which lay on a table at her elbow, so worn by pocketing that the margins had reached the edge of the type. Tess took it up, and her mother started. This going to hunt up her shiftless husband at the inn was one of Mrs. Derbyfield's still extant enjoyments in the muck and muddle of rearing children. To discover him at Rolliver's to sit there for an hour or two by his side, and dismiss all thought and care of the children during the interval, made her happy. A sort of halo, an occidental glow, came over life then. Troubles and other realities took on themselves a metaphysical impalpability, sinking to mere mental phenomena for serene contemplation, and no longer stood as pressing concretions, which chafed body and soul. The youngsters, not immediately within sight, seemed rather bright and desirable appurtenances than otherwise. The incidents of daily life were not without humorousness and jollity in their aspect there. She felt a little as she had used to feel when she sat by her now waited husband in the same spot during his wooing, shutting her eyes to his defects of character, and regarding him only in his ideal presentation as lover tess being left alone with the younger children went first to the outhouse with the fortune-telling book and stuffed it into the thatch a curious fetishistic fear of this grimy volume on the part of her mother prevented her ever allowing it to stay in the house all night and hither it was brought back whenever it had been consulted between the mother with her fast perishing lumber of superstitions folk-lore dialect and orally transmitted ballads and the daughter with her trained national teachings and standard knowledge under an infinitely revised code, there was a gap of two hundred years as ordinarily understood. When they were together, the Jacobean and the Victorian ages were juxtaposed. Returning along the garden-path, Tess mused on what the mother could have wished to ascertain from the book on this particular day. She guessed the recent ancestral discovery to bear upon it but did not divine that it solely concerned herself. Dismissing this, however, she busied herself with sprinkling the linen dried during the daytime, in company with her nine-year-old brother Abraham, and her sister Eliza Louisa, of twelve and a half, called Liza Lou, the youngest ones being put to bed. There was an interval of four years and more between Tess and the next of the family, the two who had filled the gap having died in their infancy, and this lent her a deputy maternal attitude when she was alone with her juniors next in juvenility to abraham came two more girls hope and modesty then a boy of 3 and then a baby who had just completed his first year all these young souls were passengers in the derbyfield ship entirely dependent on the judgment of the two derbyfield adults for their pleasures their necessities their health even their existence If the heads of the Derbyfield household chose to sail into difficulty, disaster, starvation, disease, degradation, death, thither were these half-dozen little captives under hatches compelled to sail with them—six helpless creatures, who had never been asked if they wished for life on any terms, much less if they wished for it on such hard conditions as were involved in being of the shiftless house of Derbyfield. Some people would like to know whence the poet, whose philosophy is in these days deemed as profound and trustworthy as his song is breezy and pure, gets his authority for speaking of nature's holy plan. It grew later, and neither father nor mother reappeared. Tess looked out of the door, and took a mental journey through Marlott. The village was shutting its eyes candles and lamps were being put out everywhere she could inwardly behold the extinguisher and the extended hand her mother's fetching simply meant one more to fetch tess began to perceive that a man in indifferent health who proposed to start on a journey before one in the morning ought not to be at an inn at this late hour celebrating his ancient blood abraham she said to her little brother do you put on your hat you be'n't afraid and go up to Rolliver's and see what has gone with father and mother. The boy jumped promptly from his seat and opened the door, and the night swallowed him up. Half an hour passed yet again, neither man, woman, nor child returned. Abraham, like his parents, seemed to have been limed and caught by the ensnaring inn. I must go myself, she said. Liza Lou then went to bed, and Tess, locking them all in, started on her way up the dark and crooked lane, or street, not made for hasty progress. A street laid out before inches of land had value, and when one-handed clocks, sufficiently subdivided the day. CHAPTER Four. Roliver's Inn, the single ale-house at this end of the long and broken village, could only boast of an off-licence. Hence, as nobody could legally drink on the premises, The amount of overt accommodation for consumers was strictly limited to a little board about six inches wide and two yards long, fixed to the garden palings by pieces of wire, so as to form a ledge. On this board, thirsty strangers deposited their cups as they stood in the road, and drank, and threw the dregs on the dusty ground to the pattern of Polynesia, and wished they could have a restful seat inside. Thus the strangers but there were also local customers who felt the same wish and where there's a will there's a way in the large bedroom upstairs the window of which was thickly curtained with a great woolen shawl lately discarded by the landlady mrs Rolliver, were gathered on this evening nearly a dozen persons all seeking beatitude all old inhabitants of the nearer end of Marlot and frequenters of this retreat Not only did the distance to the pure drop, the fully licensed tavern at the further part of the dispersed village, render its accommodation practically unavailable for dwellers at this end, but the far more serious question, the quality of the liquor, confirmed the prevalent opinion that it was better to drink with Rolliver in a corner of the housetop than with the other landlord in a wide house a gaunt four-post bedstead which stood in the room afforded sitting-space for several persons gathered round three of its sides a couple more men had elevated themselves on a chest of drawers another rested on the oak-carved coffer, two on the washstand another on the stool and thus all were somehow seated at their ease the stage of mental comfort to which they had arrived at this hour was one wherein their souls expanded beyond their skins and spread their personalities warmly through the room. In this process the chamber and its furniture grew more and more dignified and luxurious. The shawl hanging at the window took upon itself the richness of tapestry. The brass handles of the chest of drawers were as golden knockers, and the curved bedposts, seemed to have some kinship with the magnificent pillars of Solomon's Temple. Mrs. Durbeyfield, having quickly walked hitherward after parting from Tess, opened the front door, crossed the downstairs room, which was in deep gloom, and then unfastened the stair-door like one whose fingers knew the tricks of the latches well. Her ascent of the crooked staircase was a slower process, and her face, as it rose into the light above the last stair, encountered the gaze of all the party assembled in the room being a few private friends i've asked in to keep up club-walking at my own expense the landlady exclaimed at the sound of footsteps as glibly as a child repeating the catechism while she peered over the stairs oh tis you mrs durbeyfield lord how you frightened me i thought it might be some gaffer said by government. Mrs. Derbyfield was welcomed with glances and nods by the remainder of the conclave, and turned to where her husband sat. He was humming absently to himself, in a low tone, I be as good as some folks here and there. I've got a great family of Alter King's beer sub Greenhill, and finer skillintons than any man in Wessex. I've something to tell ye that's come into my head about that uh, grand project. Whispered his cheerful wife. Here, John, don't ye see me? She nudged him, while he, looking through her as through a window pane, went on with his recitative. Hush! Don't ye sing so loud, my good man," said the landlady, in case any member of the government should be passing and take away my license. He's told ye what's happened to us, I suppose," asked Missus Derbyfield. "Yes, in a way. Do ye think there's any money hanging by it?" ah that's the secret said joan durbeyfield sagely however tis well to be kin to a coach even if you don't ride in em she dropped her public voice and continued in a low tone to her husband i've been thinking since you brought the news that there's a great rich lady out by Trentridge on the edge of the Chase, o the name of d'Urberville. eh what's that said sir john she repeated the information that lady must be our relation she said and my project is to send tess to claim kin there is a lady of the name now you mention it said durbeyfield parson tringham didn't think of that but she's nothing beside we a junior branch of us no doubt hailing long since king norman's day while this question was being discussed neither of the pair noticed in their preoccupation that little abraham had crept into the room and was awaiting an opportunity of asking them to return. "'She is rich, and she'd be sure to take notice of the maid,' continued Mrs. Durbeyfield, "'and twill be a very good thing. I don't see why two branches of one family should not be on visiting terms.' "'Yes, and we'll all claim kin,' said Abraham, brightly, from under the bedstead, "'and we'll all go and see her when Tess has gone to live with her, and we'll ride in her coach and wear black clothes.' "'How do you come here, child? What nonsense be ye talking? Go away and play on the stairs till father and mother be ready. Well, Tess ought to go to this other member of our family. She'd be sure to win the lady, Tess would, and, likely enough, twould lead to some noble gentleman marrying her. In short, I know it.' "'How?' "'I tried her fate in the fortune-teller, and it brought out that very thing.' You should have seen how pretty she looked to-day. Her skin is as simple as a duchess. What says the maid herself to goin I've not asked her. She don't know there is any such lady relation yet, but it would certainly put her in the way of a grand marriage, and she won't say nay to goin Tess is queer, but she's tractable at bottom. Leave her to me though this conversation had been private sufficient of its import reached the understandings of those around to suggest to them that the derby fields had weightier concerns to talk of now than common folks had and that tess their pretty eldest daughter had fine prospects in store tess is a fine figure of fun as i said to myself to-day when i seed her vampin round parish with the rest observed one of the elderly boozers in an undertone but Joan Derbyfield must mind that she don't get green malt in floor.' It was a local phrase which had a peculiar meaning, and there was no reply. The conversation became inclusive, and presently other footsteps were heard crossing the room below. "'Being a few private friends asked in tonight to help up club-walking at my own expense, The landlady had rapidly reused the formula she kept on hand for intruders before she recognized that the newcomer was Tess. Even to her mother's gaze, the girl's young features looked sadly out of place, amid the alcoholic vapors which floated here as no unsuitable medium for wrinkled middle age, and hardly was a reproachful flash from Tess's dark eyes needed to make her father and mother rise from their seats, hastily finish their ale, and ascend the stairs behind her mrs rolliver's caution following their footsteps no noise please if y'all be so good my dears or i might lose my license and be summonsed and i don't know what all Nighty. they went home together tess holding one arm of her father and mrs durbeyfield the other he had in truth drunk very little not a fourth of the quantity which a systematic tippler could carry to church on a Sunday afternoon without a hitch in his eastings or genuflections. But the weakness of Sir John's constitution made mountains of his petty sins in this kind. On reaching the fresh air, he was sufficiently unsteady to incline the row of three at one moment as if they were marching to London, and at another as if they were marching to Bath, which produced a comical effect frequent enough in families on nocturnal home-goings, and, like most comical effects, not quite so comic after all. The two women valiantly disguised these forced excursions and counter-marches, as well as they could from Derbyfield, their cause, and from Abraham, and from themselves. And so they approached by degrees their own door, the head of the family bursting suddenly into his former refrain as he drew near as if to fortify his soul at sight of the smallness of his present residence i've got a fellow to believe what in kings hush don't be so silly jacky said his wife yours is not the only family that was a count in old days look at the anktels and horses and the tringhams themselves gone to seed almost as much as you though you was bigger folks than they that's true thank god i was never of no family and have nothing to be ashamed of in that way don't you be so sure that from your nature it is my belief you've disgraced themselves more than any of us and was kings and queens outright at one time tess turned the subject by saying what was far more prominent in her own mind at the moment than thoughts of her ancestry i am afraid father won't be able to take the journey with the beehives to-morrow so early i i shall be all right in an hour or two said Derbyfield. it was eleven o'clock before the family were all in bed and two o'clock next morning was the latest hour for starting with the beehives if they were to be delivered to the retailers at casterbridge before the saturday market began the way thither lying by bad roads over a distance of between twenty and thirty miles and the horse and wagon being of the slowest at half-past one mrs Derbyfield came into the large bedroom where tess and all her little brothers and sisters slept the poor man can't go she said to her eldest daughter whose great eyes had opened the moment her mother's hand touched the door tess sat up in bed lost in a vague interspace between a dream and this information somebody must go she replied it is late for the hives already swarming will soon be over for the year and if we put off taking him till next week's market the call for em will be passed and they'll be thrown on our hands mrs Derbyfield looked unequal to the emergency some young feller perhaps would go one of them who were so much after dancing with you yesterday she presently suggested oh no i wouldn't have it for the world declared tess proudly and letting everybody know the reason such a thing to be ashamed of. I think I could go, if Abraham could go with me to keep me company. Her mother at length agreed to this arrangement. Little Abraham was aroused from his deep sleep in a corner of the same apartment, and made to put on his clothes while still mentally in the other world. Meanwhile Tess had hastily dressed herself, and the twain, lighting a lantern, went out to the stable. The rickety little wagon was already laden, and the girl laid out the horse, Prince, only a degree less rickety than the vehicle. The poor creature looked wonderingly round at the knight, at the lantern, at their two figures, as if he could not believe that at that hour, when every living thing was intended to be in shelter and at rest, he was called upon to go out and labour. They put a stock of candle-ends into the lantern, hung the ladder to the off-side of the road, and directed the horse onward walking at his shoulder at first, during the uphill parts of the way, in order not to overload an animal of so little vigour. To cheer themselves as well as they could, they made an artificial morning, with the lantern, some bread and butter, and their own conversation, the real morning being far from come. Abraham, as he more fully awoke, for he had moved in a sort of trance so far, began to talk of the strange shapes assumed by the various dark objects against the sky, of this tree that looked like a raging tiger springing from a lair, of that which resembled a giant's head. When they got past the little town of Storcastle, dumbly somnolent under its thick brown thatch, they reached higher ground. Still higher, on their left, the elevation called Bullbarrow, or Bealbarrow, well nigh the highest in South Wessex, swelled into the sky, engirdled by its earthen trenches. From hereabout the long road was fairly level for some distance onward. They mounted in front of the wagon, and Abraham grew reflective. "'Tess,' he said, in a preparatory tone, after a silence, "'Yes, Abraham?' "'Bean't you glad that we've become gentlefolk?' "'Not particular glad.' "'But you be glad that you am going to marry a gentleman?' "'What?' said Tess, lifting her face that our great relation will help ye marry a gentleman?" I, a great relation? We have no such relation. What has put that into your head?' "'I heard him talking about it up at Rolliver's, when I went to find father. There's a rich lady of our family out at Trantridge, and mother said that if you claimed kin with the lady, she'd put ye in the way of marrying a gentleman.' His sister became abruptly still, and lapsed into a pondering silence abraham talked on rather for the pleasure of utterance than for audition so that his sister's abstraction was of no account he leant back against the hives and with upturned face made observations on the stars whose cold pulses were beating amid the black hollows above in serene dissociation from those two wisps of human life he asked how far away those twinklers were and whether god was on the other side of them but ever and anon his childish prattle recurred to what impressed his imagination even more deeply than the wonders of creation if tess were made rich by marrying a gentleman would she have money enough to buy a spy-glass so large that it would draw the stars as near to her as Nettleton tout the renewed subject which seemed to have impregnated the whole family filled tess with impatience never you mind that now she exclaimed did you say the stars were worlds, Tess?" Yes. All like ours?" I don't know, but I think so. They sometimes seem to be like apples on our stubborn-tree—most of them splendid and sound—a few blighted. Which do we live on—a splendid one, or a blighted one? A blighted one. Tis very unlucky that we didn't pitch on a sound one, when there are so many more of them." yes is it like that really tess said abraham turning to her much impressed on reconsideration of this rare information how would it have been if we had pitched on a sound one well father wouldn't have coughed and creeped about as he does and wouldn't have got too tipsy to go on this journey and mother wouldn't have been always washing and never getting finished and you would have been a rich lady ready-made and not have had to be made rich by marrying a gentleman? Oh, Abie, don't talk of that any more!" Left to his reflections, Abraham soon grew drowsy. Tess was not skilful in the management of a horse, but she thought that she could take upon herself the entire conduct of the load for the present, and allow Abraham to go to sleep if he wished to do so. She made him a sort of nest in front of the hives, in such a manner that he could not fall, and taking the reins in her own hands jogged on as before prince required but slight attention lacking energy for superfluous movements of any sort with no longer a companion to distract her tess fell more deeply into reverie than ever her back leaning against the hives the mute procession past her shoulders of trees and hedges became attached to fantastic scenes outside reality and the occasional heave of the wind became the sigh of some immense sad soul, coterminous with the universe in space, and with history in time. Then, examining the mesh of events in her own life, she seemed to see the vanity of her father's pride, the gentlemanly suitor awaiting herself in her mother's fancy, to see him as a grimacing personage, laughing at her poverty and her shrouded knightly ancestry everything grew more and more extravagant and she no longer knew how time passed a sudden jerk shook her in her seat and tess awoke from the sleep into which she too had fallen they were a long way further on than when she had lost consciousness and the wagon had stopped a hollow groan unlike anything she had ever heard in her life came from the front followed by a shout of Hoy there the lantern hanging at her wagon had gone out but another was shining in her face, much brighter than her own had been. Something terrible had happened. The harness was entangled with an object which blocked the way. In consternation, Tess jumped down and discovered the dreadful truth. The groan had proceeded from her father's poor horse, Prince. The morning mail-cart, with its two noiseless wheels speeding along these lanes like an arrow, as it always did, had driven into her slow and unlighted equipage the pointed shaft of the cart had entered the breast of the unhappy prince like a sword and from the wound his life's blood was spouting in a stream and falling with a hiss into the road in her despair tess sprang forward and put her hand upon the hole, with the only result that she became splashed from face to skirt with the crimson drops then she stood helplessly looking on prince also stood firm and motionless as long as he could Till he suddenly sank down in a heap. By this time, the mailcart man had joined her and began dragging and unharnessing the hot form of Prince, but he was already dead. And seeing that nothing more could be done immediately, the mailcart returned with his own animal, which was uninjured. You was on the wrong side, he said. I am bound to go on with the mailbags, so that the best thing for you to do is to bide here with your load. I'll send somebody to help you as soon as I can. It is getting daylight, and you have nothing to fear. He mounted and sped on his way, while Tess stood and waited. The atmosphere turned pale, the birds shook themselves in the hedges, arose, and twittered. The lane showed all its white features, and Tess showed hers, still whiter. The huge pool of blood in front of her was already assuming the iridescence of coagulation, and when the sun rose a hundred prismatic hues were reflected from it. Prince lay alongside, still and stark, his eyes half open, the hole in his chest looking scarcely large enough to have let out all that had animated him. "'Tis all my doing—all mine!" the girl cried, gazing at the spectacle. "'No excuse for me—none! What will mother and father live on now?' Abi, Abi! She shook the child, who had slept soundly through the whole disaster we can't go on with our load—prince is killed." When Abraham realized all, the furrows of fifty years were extemporized on his young face. "'Why, I danced and laughed only yesterday,' she went on to herself, "'to think that I was such a fool. "'Tis because we be on a blighted star and not a sound one, isn't it, Tess?' murmured Abraham through his tears. In silence they waited through an interval which seemed endless. At length a sound and an approaching object proved to them that the driver of the mail car had been as good as his word. A farmer's man from near Storcastle came up, leading a strong cob. He was harnessed to the waggon of beehives in the place of Prince, and the load taken on towards Casterbridge. The evening of the same day saw the empty waggon reach again the spot of the accident. Prince had lain there in the ditch since the morning, but the place of the blood-pool was still visible in the middle of the road, though scratched and scraped over by passing vehicles. All that was left of Prince was now hoisted into the wagon he had formerly hauled, and with his hoofs in the air, and his shoes shining in the setting sunlight, he retraced the eight or nine miles to Marlott. Tess had gone back earlier. How to break the news was more than she could think. It was a relief to her tongue to find from the faces of her parents that they already knew of their loss, though this did not lessen the self-reproach which she continued to heap upon herself for her negligence. But the very shiftlessness of the household rendered the misfortune a less terrifying one to them than it would have been to a thriving family, though in the present case it meant ruin and in the other it would only have meant inconvenience. In the Derbyfield countenances, there was nothing of the red wrath that would have burnt upon the girl from the parents more ambitious for her welfare. Nobody blamed Tess as she blamed herself. When it was discovered that the knacker and tanner would give only a very few shillings for Prince's carcass because of his decrepitude, Derbyfield rose to the occasion. "'No,' said he, stoically, "'I won't sell his old body.' When we Durbervilles was knights in the land, we didn't sell our charges for cat's meat. Let em keep their shillings. He have served me well in his lifetime, and I won't part from him now. He worked harder the next day in digging a grave for Prince in the garden than he had worked for months to grow a crop for his family. When the hole was ready, Derbyfield and his wife tied a rope round the horse and dragged him up the path towards it. The children following in funeral train, Abraham and Liza Lou sobbed. Hope and modesty discharged their griefs in loud blares, which echoed from the walls. And when Prince was tumbled in, they gathered round the grave. The breadwinner had been taken away from them. What would they do? Is he gone to heaven? Asked Abraham between the sobs. Then Durbeyfield began to shovel in the earth, and the children cried anew. All except Tess. Her face was dry and pale, as though she regarded herself in the light of a murderess. Part two.